worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm all in favor of having Star Trek episodes with Shakespearean titles, but here's a tip, Trek writers. You're probably not going to get your script for The Beast with Two Backs past standards and practices. I'm joined on this episode by Robin D. Laws. Robin is a writer and game designer and the creator of the Gumshoe Investigative Role-Playing System. He's written for multiple RPG settings, including Dungeons & Dragons, Feng Shui, Warhammer, and Dying Earth, and was a contributor to the Last Unicorn Games' Star Trek RPG line. He's also a novelist, having written works set in various RPG universes, and has written a number of nonfiction books with a gaming focus. And he's the creative director of Stoneskin Press, where he's edited anthologies covering a range of genre fiction. He's a podcaster as well, hosting Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff with his longtime collaborator, Kenneth Height. Robin, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Conscience of the King, the 13th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. Like many episodes of Star Trek, Conscience of the King takes its title from the works of Shakespeare. But what's in a name? The episode contains intrigue, mystery, and murder most foul, certainly. But unlike other Trek episodes with a Shakespearean title or theme, this episode wears its heart upon its sleeve by putting its theatrical elements at center stage and inserting its actions to its words and its words to its actions. It elevates what could have been another tired literary illusion into an entertaining exercise in genre and drama. But we'll give our thoughts tongue about that a little later in the show. First, Robin, let's dive into your dossier. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Like uh, anyone who was uh, a young teenager in the 70s through syndicated television. <laughs> uh, so, And of course, uh, in the 70s, what you were seeing on TV was not only cut, but uh, they were uh, sort of worn out prints. And so you always used to have a lovely pastel colored uh, sort of faded Star Trek. And now that they've all been restored, it's like, wow, those yeah. are some Zowie colors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, because there wasn't always, uh, you know, the ambush back in the days when you just watched whatever televisions came in your way. And so you didn't always have the Star Trek. So um, I also read the, uh, I guess not novelizations, but short storyifications by James Blish. And yeah. so I remember right, perhaps right. The, uh, this episode more uh, clearly from having read the short story version of it than the actual episode itself. Sure. I always um, loved the photo novels back then because I was, I was a comics fan. And so it was sort of like the perfect blending of my love of Star Trek and then easily readable comics as well. Uh, right. And so the... Uh, so I was there, of course, for uh, when the, the movie started coming out and uh, uh, the uh, sort of long, languorous uh, version of the, of the first film that the studio wouldn't let Robert Wise cut down because they insisted on having all of the long pan shots of the <laughs> model of the Enterprise and then Wrath of Khan being the, uh, the, you know, the ultimate uh, track film. And then, you know, since then, as a 
uh, genre fan. I've uh, followed the uh, the franchise on and off uh, ever since, all the way up to uh, uh, Discovery. Which you know, hey, in Discovery they could do Beast with two backs. Oh yeah, they could probably get away with that for sure. <laughs> you know, real Trek is Swear Trek now, so they, they can do whatever they. <laughs> exactly. And of course, uh, Wrath of Khan, uh, continuing the long tradition of literary illusion um, that's used uh, sometimes excessively in Star Trek, but always to great effect. Uh, you created the gumshoe system. Can you explain gumshoe for listeners who's not f- who are not familiar with it? So the idea behind uh, gumshoe, uh, if you know tabletop role playing games at all, you know that there is, uh, uh, it has been a traditional problem or was until gumshoe came along, where uh, the way that you got information was by making a random roll against your skill, uh, whatever information finding skill. So, you know, you might have a read tricorder skill or a, uh, a ast- an astronautic skill or whatever to find out a, a crucial piece of information that you need to go forward in the story. And uh, some uh, game masters, when a roll has failed, will just go, but. That's it. I don't know what's going to happen now. Right. Um, and that's uh, that's disastrous. You would think that no one ever does that. And what they, what really most game masters do is they will find some other way to get you the information. But that's after twenty minutes of faffing around and improvising. Right. Well, Gumshoe says, don't do that. So if you have the right ability and you look in the right place, there's no randomness involved in whether you get the crucial information you need to move forward into the story. You just get the information because that's interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> and failing to get information is never interesting. There's all sorts of things that are still interesting to fail at, like firing your phaser at the Gorn or uh, trying to uh, pull the shuttle out of the vortex before it gets uh, sucked into the black hole. Uh, right. Because you can imagine an interesting result of failure as well as an interesting result of success. So uh, Gumshoe has a different system for that that allows you to allocate your points in each skill so that when you really, really care about succeeding, you have more chance of uh, succeeding than not. But that that your sort of spotlight moments, the big moments that would be, you know, McCoy's big moment in the show or Worf's big moment in the show are things that cost you points and you have to pick and choose when you're going to have your your big moment of triumph. That sounds interesting. I mean, there, it's true that there's a lot of little failures on the way to an ultimate failure, which would result in death or, or failure or something like that. And it's good that that uh, exploits that. You know, the best RPGs uh, are rewarding because they allow players to solve problems and succeed in the way they choose. And some are more combat and mechanics-based, and others focus more on storytelling and collaboration. Is there a perfect way to merge the elements of shared storytelling and killing stuff, or do they always have to stand somewhat apart? Um, well, it all depends on uh, the genre, first of all, like Dungeons and Dragons, of course. The, the killing stuff is the main feature. Right. And uh, you can add more uh, plot and story to uh, D&D. There are certainly people who will tell you that there's, there's entire sessions go by where uh, nobody rolls a die. Well, you've spontaneously catapulted into a form of improv storytelling that doesn't require uh, intersection of, of randomness. But... Most people show up at a D&D table expecting to be able to fight and kill things. And right. so sort of as an advanced technique, you go, well, uh, fighting in D&D is like a musical number in a musical film, that it's the big uh, set piece moment, but it also should further the story in some way. And so as sort of as an advanced technique, you can, well, here's the stakes of this fight. Here's what happens, uh, not so much if you win or lose, because you almost always win a fight 
in D&D, the question is, what does it cost you? And it's a big, dramatic, uh, potentially campaign-ending thing if everybody dies. Right. But you might lose one person or whatever. But at any rate, it's like how well you do in the fight, uh, less than whether you die, uh, determines where you go next in the storyline, for example. Now, something like Star Trek, it turns out, if you look at it, we remember the action scenes, uh, particularly uh, the ship combat, and particularly in the films, because, of course, film uh, has a bigger budget and time uh, for action sequences. But if you look at the uh, episodes of the show, especially the early episodes back when uh, TV uh, did not have the money to do big, massive things, the fights are pretty quick and short, and uh, they resolve right away because they don't have the time or... uh, in the case of the original series, the technology to really do a lot with that. Right. And that's um, where we get to why I picked Conscience of the King to talk about it today, because uh, working on Gumshoe, uh, it became apparent, and I wish it had been my original thought, but it was the thought of a player in my group named uh, Alex Johnston, uh, that, uh, hey, if you look at Trek, it's actually almost always a mystery show. In fact, it's often a police procedural yeah. where the... Uh, characters encounter a space mystery and then uh, figure out what's going on and then uh, Trek being Trek, it then leads often to a moral dilemma that has to be resolved, uh, but not always Not for example, not so much in the case of Conscience of the King the, the moral content is there, but it's not uh, a dilemma per se that Kirk has to uh, resolve in this and so uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk about the fact that Trek is really a mystery show. It's a cop show. They're cops in space. Yeah, absolutely. It isn't a dilemma so much as uh, whether he's right or wrong, but whether he should act on it, uh, which, of course, echoes what they're sourcing here, which is Hamlet. Right. Um, I, uh, what a, a very important game for me, um, and one of the reasons I'm doing this show today, was the Last Unicorn uh, series of Star Trek games. Um, they were well-designed. They were focused on storytelling, which fit well for Trek. And they came at a perfect time for me um, in the late you know, 90s where TNG had wrapped up, but it was in continual syndication. There were two other Trek shows on TV, and so Trek was everywhere, and me and my nerdy friends were able to totally immerse ourselves uh, in Trekkiness. And just as um, fans like reading you know, the technical manual and things like that, we love just picking up these source books and not only playing, but also just reading and watching you guys just sort of add content and just spin out all this new stuff uh, to add to the Star Trek universe. Um, yeah, it's uh, a, as a player, it is great to have uh, a property to play with that you know really well. That if you've watched a lot of Trek, right. you have all the assumptions of Trek basically in your bones, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you know what to do uh, when in uh, you know when there's a dilemma, a choice to be made. You know what sort of ranges of choice a uh, a Federation officer would make. You can think, well, what would Kirk do? What would Picard do? What, or you know, what, how would Spock tackle this problem? And so, all of the uh, sort of uh, archetypal situations that have, uh, by that time, accrued uh, to the franchise over the uh, decades were things that you could use and pick up to as building blocks of your own story. And as uh, writers on that project, it was a lot of fun to be able to sort of extrapolate kind of background material because of course uh, the uh, Trek writers I think very brilliantly only provide you the amount of information that you need to understand that given story and in fact if things get 
contradictory at the edges of little throwaway references in other episodes, they don't care so much about that. They do not have that sort of uh, nerd mind of being shackled to a continuity. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you can get to the Klingon home world in, in a blink of an eye, and the other time it's impossibly far away from Earth. <laughs> right. Uh, because that those are the needs of the episodes. Now, uh, the thing is when you're working on a role-playing game, sometimes you run into the expectation that fans have that finally, you know, you're going to resolve all of these internal contradictions. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not how that's going to, uh, going to work. And, but the, uh, the uh, license holders, the people who uh, dealt with, uh, from Paramount, who dealt with uh, Last Unicorn and later with Cypher, uh, were, uh, you know, very open. And we were surprised by, uh, you know, how uh, little worry there was for the fine uh, details of things and they were interested in having uh, you know the, the crew of writers add uh, stuff to the world and because sometimes you deal with uh, licensors who are extremely uh, uh, micromanaging and what they will let through but uh, here that you know if we had a cool idea of fit and in one case as John Ross's uh, Andorian source book got referenced in Enterprise that actually made uh, some of that uh, canon if canon is still playing a track. Yeah, I suppose it probably is. I hope it is. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah. Uh, something else I liked about that system is that it was uh, a D6 system, um, which is a little weird when you spend your entire gaming life with a gunny sack full of 37-sided die or whatever, but here's a system that you can essentially play with a single D6 that you got from a Yahtzee set. And it's a pool, you know, dice pool-based system, unlike the uh, combat-oriented sort of FACO-based uh, D&D stuff. Uh, that we were doing at the time, or like Palladium games, it was nice to get away from the numbers and just uh, focus on um, on the skills and how they can affect the story. By 2017 standards, I think you would look at uh, that rule system and go, oh, that's kind of crunchy. But by uh, when it came out, uh, it seemed uh, lighter in comparison to the games you're referring to. Apart from your own work, are there any other games or systems out right now that you're really impressed with? It, it is often asked to me, you know, what's your favorite new game or what's the new thing that you're playing that's exciting? And the thing is, well, my job really is to make sure that I've played more of my new game than anybody else. Right, and right. So, for example, I've been working on the new thing that's coming out at the end of 2018, the Yellow King role-playing game, okay. uh, pretty intensively for over a year. Every I have a game, a uh, role-playing game every Thursday night, uh, but it's uh, Yellow King. And that when I move on to the next thing, it will also uh, almost undoubtedly uh, be either a previous game of mine that I want to explore more or uh, more likely the next thing that I'm going to be working on because uh, uh, my job is to be the number one expert in uh, gumshoe and in feng shui and in drama systems. So right. uh, that's right. Uh, sort of mostly focused these days. So the uh, other games that really impacted me were ones from the early years, like Call of Cthulhu and Quest and so on. Sure. Heavy lies the head that has to design these games. Well, yes, I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's it's a it's a fun job to have, but right. it's one that requires that I uh, put all of my focus onto what I'm doing, and I'm sure that uh, all of the other designers who are doing the same thing are also producing super awesome things. Yeah. Well, you told us why you uh, selected this specific episode, but I was um, interested to find out your thoughts about the meeting of role-playing games and something that is highlighted in this episode, theater. Um, I have a theater background myself, 
And so when I came to role-playing games, it was just second nature to fit myself into a character. But I've wondered about your experience in playing with a lot of different players. How do you see players taking that on? I mean, do they realize that they are acting, essentially? Um, that's something that uh, more and more with the story games movement coming along, people are more comfortable acknowledging that they are the uh, authors as well as the audience as well as the participants when they sit down to create a role-playing game together. The original generations of uh, role players were, I think, reluctant to fully grapple with that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because the D&D uh, &D comes out of wargaming, right? That uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Ernison, when they created that game, were not trying to create a new storytelling medium. Right. They did that by accident by taking war games and going, what if we reduced the unit size to a guy in a pointy hat <laughs> or a guy with a sword? And then the next step is, what if they sort of had adventures and had a continuing continuity and there was persistence between scenarios? Right. And then, oh, wait a minute, that's character development. And uh, notoriously, uh, uh, Gary in particular was pretty ambivalent about uh, playing games as a storytelling meeting he started to complain about people wanting to play act uh, in the middle of their their DD &D sessions uh, because the first person to basically take D&D uh, &D out, of, out of a game experience and turn it into a story experience was the one that made well I know what the smart thing to do is but my character would do the other thing <laughs> right it would do the not smart thing the not tactical thing because he has this personality and and these and this objective, and so that's when it you know spun. It, uh, we talk about in role playing or in gaming in general things becoming emergent during during play. Well, the whole nature of the medium emerged in play. Right. It wasn't designed to do to, to do that at all. Um, but uh, as we've gone along, of course, uh, once you do that, people notice what's going on, and uh, certainly myself and others have uh, analyzed how that works. In fact. Uh, since we're talking about Shakespeare, I have a book out called Hamlet's Hit Points. And <laughs> the whole uh, point of that is to analyze the building blocks of narrative in order to allow GMs and players to uh, uh, see uh, instinctively how storytelling works in order to bring that into their own gaming decisions. Um, and uh, after I brought that out, a number of people uh, I guess I shouldn't name drop. A number of people said to me, uh, you know, this isn't a role-playing book. This is a book about writing. And so uh, this spring, uh, there will be a book called Beating the Story, which is all about story analysis directed to uh, writers. And it's addressed not just to literary writers, as almost all uh, writing manuals are, but to people writing uh, genre stuff or TV episodes. Okay, uh, And so that's an example of how my awareness of narrative and role-playing fed into something that was actually applicable to storytelling in general. That's great. I'd have to imagine, even in those early days of role-playing, there were still some people who kind of thought of themselves as knights. Somebody must have been wearing chainmail while they were playing chainmail. Uh, I'm sure there were, but also that was also super fraught, because if you remember when D&D first came out, that was during the height of the satanic panic. <laughs> That's and true. So there was uh, a lot of fear surrounding D&D, &D, and uh, there the uh, the James Dallas Egbert disappearance, which is of 
uh, someone who was uh, suicidal and had his own personal problems right. and happened to play D&D, the media seized on that as if it was somehow caused by Dungeons and Dragons. And so uh, the powers that be at TSR, uh, which was the company that at the time uh, owned D&D, were very worried about anything that seemed like live action play because it would remind people of uh, James Dallas Egbert. And so at early Gen Cons, as D&D was growing, anything like that would have been banned. Oh, right? If you showed up uh, in costume, that was a problem. And huh. they, uh, they wanted, uh, like, it was a big controversial move <laughs> to finally allow LARPing at Gen Con. Well, at least they finally did. Uh, yes, as, as the satanic uh, panic wore off. And uh, uh, so it's a, a weird thing to think about today, but there are people you know, in the Bible Belt, who will tell you, well, yeah, you know, they closed down the local game store because of it. So it was a, it was a real, uh, a real imaginary thing or an imaginary real thing, one or the other. Yeah. Well, we'll save our discussions of Satanism until we're talking about the episode, The Magics of Megas 2. Yes. Uh, today, we're talking about The Conscience of the King. As I said, it's the 13th episode of the first season of the original series. It first aired on the 8th of December of 1966. It was written by Barry Trivers. Barry Trivers was a film and television writer, and he won a Writers Guild Award for his episode of Naked City, entitled The Fault in Our Stars. And we often talk on this show about how in the early days of Trek, the writers were still discovering what was a Trek story and what wasn't a Star Trek story. And Trivers wrote a script for the show in 66 entitled Portrait in Black and White. It was based on a concept from Roddenberry's original series proposal. The concept was that the Enterprise goes to a planet where whites are being sold as slaves by blacks. Does that kind of story ever work? What if we made them so they, each of them was half black and half oh, white yeah. oh, boy. on the other side of the face? That would be less fraught, but still as obvious. Yeah, right. It's just as obvious. Uh, the, the story was a favorite by DeForest Kelly, uh, who wanted to see it focus on McCoy, a southerner, and Uhura, a black woman being trapped on the planet. And like you said, it's bad enough that we have Frank Gorshin dressed up like a black and white cookie. But I think that kind of heavy handed early sci fi metaphor that Gene seemed to constantly want to push uh, into his uh, into what Trek was, that idea of it being Gulliver's travel style social commentary in space. Thankfully, Trek became so much more than that as it went on. Although the, the sort of social commitment of the original is. Uh, I think one of the things that makes it uh, powerful. Oh, certainly, and, no question. Um, and uh, that when Trek gets too far away from that, as uh, as it does during the movies, for example, that it loses an element that that it would be nice to see preserved. So I would love to see you know a, a episode of the the current film series where they solve a space mystery and then have to confront a moral dilemma. And we haven't quite seen that so much. Uh, yet as, uh, you know, Kirk confronting daddy issues, which is more <laughs> a screenwriter 101 thing these days. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, this episode was directed by Gerd Oswald. Gerd Oswald also directed the TOS episode, The Alternative Factor. He worked in film and television, and he notably directed the movie A Kiss Before Dying, which starred Robert Wagner and Jeffrey Hunter, who played Captain Pike in The Cage. He also directed the Outer Limits episode, Soldier, which was written by Harlan Ellison and was one of the inspirations for the Terminator series. And the start date for this episode is 2817.6. So, Robin, your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Conscience of the King. 25? Oh, man, I didn't know I had homework. Uh, <laughs> it, doesn't uh, so, be, uh, it doesn't have to be inverse, though. Uh, uh, Kirk investigates the background of an actor who may be a secret war criminal. 
Perfect. Uh, some interesting facts from the memory banks for this episode. Uh, in an episode about actors acting, there are some great guest stars in this episode. Arnold Moss plays the role of Caridian. Uh, Moss had many credits on TV and film, Broadway, even radio. He played Prospero on Broadway in 1945 uh, in an engagement that ran for 124 performances, which was a record for the show. And he was in the original Broadway production of Sondheim's Follies. Barbara Anderson plays the role of Lenore. This is one of her first roles on television, but she would go on to great success in TV. She'd be a regular on Mission Impossible and on Ironside, for which she won a primetime Emmy. We've talked previously on the show about the record six costume changes that Ricardo Montalban had during Space Seed, and Lenore ties that this episode with six. <clears throat> they share that record with Joan Collins' Edith Keeler, although one of Lenore's costumes is like half a fur coat and tights. Like, is it warm? Is it cold? What's going on? It, it's hot, uh, <laughs> as I think what the point of that costume is. Exactly. Uh, living uh, in, in Minnesota, as I do, uh, you see a lot of people, uh, women, like when they want to go out, like on the weekend, but it's the winter, you see a lot of that, like uh, <laughs> small, you know, tiny dress uh, tights, but then putting on a big coat and hoping uh, that'll uh, offset it. Well, uh, impractical uh, outfits will continue to the future. Travis. Yeah, that is, that is a constant. <laughs> the ship's theater in this episode is a redress of the engineering set, um, because of course the Enterprise has a theater. I mean, what do they do in there when they're not Shanghaiing theater groups? Like, do they just do like community theater? Well, it's it's actually just like a, a electrical outlet where they're going to plug in the holodeck in a few years. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they're still waiting for the prototype to be finished. Yes, exactly. Well, it, there's been long delays. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is apparently the only episode to depict nighttime on the Enterprise, but it seems more like an excuse for soft lighting on the observation deck to me. Can we get into the lighting? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is the film noir episode oh, of, yeah. of Trek, right? And so it's noir lighting. And uh, that's the thing that is uh, sort of surprising about it because you think of the uh, show as being overlit the way that uh, Next Generation is overlit. Yeah. And then once you get to the movies, then you've got movie lighting with all, what's, what are these shadows doing on the, on the deck of the Enterprise? Well, we've seen all the shadows on the deck of the Enterprise in, in this episode. Right. And... Uh, when you mentioned that Barry Trivers uh, did a lot of uh, episodic TV writing, he mostly did cop shows. He did Naked City and he did uh, uh, Mannix and uh, Streets of San Francisco. And so uh, we're seeing that the lighting uh, matches the, the genre of the episode. Speaking of the observation deck, this is the only episode to feature the oper uh, observation deck, which is a redress of the Romulan bridge set from the earlier episode, Balance of Terror, which aired directly after this episode, but was produced several episodes earlier. Uh, some viewers might remark that the observation deck is again seen in the third season episode, The Mark of Gideon, but if they really knew what they were talking about, they'd remember that that was aboard a replica of the Enterprise built by the denizens of Gideon, which, if you remember, is the um, avant-garde dance troupe planet, uh, the Blue Man Group planet. <laughs> Uh, this is the last production appearance of Grace Lee Whitney as Yeoman Rand in the series, and it's only a walk-on at that. She comes. She just on shows up to give Kirk the, the skunk eye. That's right. Time. That's right, yeah. She had already been told that she was fired before the scene was shot. She would, however, appear in Balance of Terror next week uh, because that was produced before. She tells the story of her firing in her autobiography, The Longest Trek. She would come back for Star Trek The Motion Picture and several other Star Trek films, and she has starred in several fan films and in the Voyager episode Flashback. Speaking of returning players, Bruce Hyde appears for the second time as Kevin Riley in this episode. He appeared famously in The Naked Time. In the original script, the character was named Robert Dakin, but when Hyde was cast in the role, 
uh, the producers realized, oh, we've seen this guy before. And so they rewrote the part to focus on the Riley character. It's nice to know that people will still be named Kevin in the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's such a normal, regular dude name. Yeah, it's not. It's no Caridius or Caridian yes. or Kodos, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eddie Paskey uh, gets a couple lines of dialogue in this episode and he finally gets a name, Mr. Leslie. This is the only episode to feature a double red alert. Double red alert when a single red alert won't do. And, and what triggers the, the double red alert? Is, is it the, the phaser? Yeah, it's it's when the phaser's on overload and I'm not sure if it's supposed to represent, you know, uh, imminent danger to life and limb coming from inside <laughs> the ship. Well, apparently no one has ever put a phaser on overload before. No, this so. is a totally new idea. Right, yeah. And I also like... Presumably it, next episode they fix that because that, what well, people... That's a design flaw. If, yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if your gun can blow up the ship uh, just by putting changing the setting, don't have that setting. Very dangerous. Exactly. Yes. There's also a sort of a production note that they eventually find it you know, behind the, um, the double red alert uh, sensor light uh, up on the, up the ceiling. And They'll never think to look in the double red alert sensor. That's, that's just uh, Space Sabotage 101. Yeah, just we'll stick it under the bed or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can tell that they're always worried about budget because the thing to do in that, in that uh, situation would be break the glass, right? It's dramatic. <laughs> but no, you can't break that because we need <sighs> to use that for another couple of years. Uh, this is one of those weird episodes that proves that the Star Trek theme song is apparently a song in the Star Trek universe as mm-hmm. an instrumental version is played by the band at Layton's cocktail party. It's groovy cocktail jazz. That's right. It's space, age, it's space age pop. And nobody gets to sing the words to it, but there are, of course, words to the song. Uh, the song is also used diegetically in the episodes Court Martial and Shore Leave. Uh, speaking of songs, the song sung by Uhura, Beyond Antares, was composed by Wilbur Hatch with the lyrics uh, written by Gene Kuhn. Hatch was a musical consultant for the series, and he worked for Desilu for many, many years. He uh, composed for I Love Lucy and pretty much all of Lucille Ball's shows. And fun fact, uh, the alien character Kodos in The Simpsons was named by Matt Groening for this episode. And, and Kang is a queen. Right? Of course, and Kang was yep. for Day of the Dove, which we've covered on the show previously. Um, speaking about the episode in general... Star Trek has often gone to the Shakespeare well in the past, although this is one of the first examples chronologically, and it's definitely the most literal. Other original series episodes that have Shakespearean titles include All Our Yesterdays by Any Other Name and Dagger of the Mind. The episode Cat's Paw features three witches, reminiscent of the witches in Macbeth, is in their truth no beauty. There is a character named Miranda that quotes The Tempest. I think Alan of Troyes is basically a, just a taming of the shrew kind of knockoff. And in Requiem for Methuselah, it's not only a play on The Tempest, but Flint may actually be Shakespeare. So why do you think that it seems so natural for Trek to be paired with Shakespeare or classical literature? Well, uh, whenever you have a Canadian on your show, we are contractually obligated as Canadians to note that, of course, uh, Shatner is one of us. That's right. Uh, and he uh, started his career at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival That's in correct. Stratford, Ontario. Yeah. So uh, it is, uh, and you mentioned that Arnold Moss has a Shakespearean record. It is, uh, was absolutely standard in those days for actors to come up uh, into television in the way that they still do uh, in the UK, which is through theater. So everybody had theater training and, and uh, classical theater training. And so that was... Uh, much more of just everybody's sort of standard uh, metier that the gulf between high and low culture uh, was not as uh, as great as it is now. Uh, but still, that this, I think, really kicks off the whole tradition of bringing that uh, classical tradition 
and letting it inform uh, uh, track, whether it's uh, episode titles or imagery, because uh, you know the one thing that uh, Trek has is a it has a stage the size of the universe, and so uh, you're it's much easier to go back to you know the classical well and find something that applies to it than it would be uh, in a cop show or in a uh, western or any of the other uh, sort of uh, different kinds of uh, TV genres that run the air at the time. Is it Q that says something like all the galaxy is a stage or something like that? Uh, that sounds like him. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, um, I think it's just uh, prototypical of the era that uh, you'd have, you know, the 60s hero who is a cultured hero as well. He can knock you out with one punch, but he'll quote the Bible or Milton to you uh, to show that he has erudition. Uh, yeah, just like uh, uh, like Bond knows how to make a, a cocktail. <laughs> right. And... Uh, you know, he's he's definitely read uh, read Latin and, and, and Greek at Eaton, even if he never he's not snobbish about mentioning it. So the the idea that this was just sort of general grist for everyone's mill was uh, uh, more the case in '66 than it would be today. Yeah, I like how uh, From Russia with Love is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Bond movie, and I like how he figures out that Red Grant is the bad guy because he ordered um, red wine with fish. Yeah, he wouldn't do that. Right. That's, <laughs> This, this guy's got to go. Um, right. And, and the whole, whole idea of the sort of uh, snobbish hero who uh, was your lifestyle expert, you know, that's why, uh, you know, Bond was the, the favorite hero of Playboy magazine. Yeah, right, right. JFK. And, uh, and uh, Kurt does a few sort of Bondy things in this episode. Oh, yeah. Including sort of, including sort of the skeevy side of Bond is, is showing up through Kurt this time around. Yeah, that's true. Um, this is something that I, I did want to talk about is the idea that I'm always trying to uh, sort of defuse what I call the um, myth of sexy Kirk on this show. In this is not the episode to defuse the myth of sexy Kirk. No, no. <laughs> but but we can refine it a little bit because uh, people think that he's and like the new movies don't help, but they think that Kirk's some horn dog who's always kissing the girls, but he's almost always using his masculine wiles. Uh, like a female character would, you know, to accomplish an objective or complete the mission, and that I think that there is a question. Yeah, as he's he's not a horn dog; he's a psychopathic manipulator. So that's better. <laughs> well, hey, it's look at James Bond. <laughs> it's the exactly, exact same thing. He's, yeah. he's doing the Bond thing. Yeah, I think you could argue though that this is one of the few episodes where we really see him uh, catch feelings, as the kids say, um, for for a female co-star. Right, because this is is even more than it's a Bond movie. It's a film noir, and yes. Le Noir and, and Lenore, I should say, is a noir uh, anti-heroine. She's a femme fatale, yes. and so you see Kirk follow the classic pattern where uh, he is uh, captured by the allure of a woman. Initially, he's going in; he's just trying to get information out of her. Um, he moves pretty quick into the putting the moves on her thing, um, but. Uh, then he uh, falls for her, and uh, and that gives him you know reason for pathos at, at the end when the uh, then the surprise revelation comes as to uh, who's put who exactly is putting the phasers on overload, um, and so uh, it's the classic noir formula of the uh, the the sap who gets in uh, too deep. Except this time that the sap is Kirk, and he doesn't get in all that deep, and it's the uh, he gets to do sort of the the uh, Maltese Falcon thing at the end, and uh, uh, you know he's not going to play at the sap for Le uh, Lenore, and then and then she goes all Ophelia at the end, uh, uh, 
speaking in classical uh, references and sort of uh, uh, which which softens that moment where uh, you know she calls him on the fact that he was just uh, manipulating her, but uh, but then she was trying to murder him so. at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> six one. She's an actress. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that. I, I love the that you point out the, the noir elements there. I think that there is an ambiguity that's uncharacteristic for um, this kind of somewhat unsophisticated storytelling you get on genre TV in the '60s. In that Kirk shows up at this cocktail party, and I love that there's a cocktail party in the future '60s because, of course, there is. Um, and he goes there, and we can assume, I guess, you, we can extrapolate that he's there to put eyes on Caridian, and even him, he must know that Lenore is. Caridian's daughter, because he would read the program he saw in the show, but it's not played up front. You know, it's only subtext if it's even that, because the the scene really does take pains to just have him woo this this woman, and if he's doing it, you know, with a wink and a nudge towards the audience, it they don't they they play that totally straight, and he wants to walk her home again, maybe to get eyes on her dad who's at home, but it's played you know fairly romantically. Uh, yes, absolutely so. And the Trek theme returns and it's been <laughs> yes. morphed from its cocktail version uh, into uh, it appears as a love theme in that scene. And so, you know, that uh, if, if uh, Kirk is having, a, you know, theme feelings for her, that's sincere. Right. Maybe he paid the band to follow them home and play the play the song. Yes, that would be the Mel Brooks version. <laughs> right. Uh, there are uh, plenty of Shakespeare references in all of the uh, uh, broadcast Trek series. Um, of course, uh, as you said before, with actors coming up and paying their dues in theater before reaching Trek, you've got a guy like Patrick Stewart, who famously uh, was in Shakespeare before he took up the role of Captain Picard. And I think that um, the best Trek references uh, to Shakespeare are are the subtle ones. Um, there's an episode called The Defector, which is written by Ronald D. Moore. and Oh, interestingly, um, this is uh, Ronald D. Moore's favorite uh, Trek episode. Um, And I think it really shows in his um, later work on things like Battlestar Galactica and things like that, um, the the moral ambiguity um, and the uh, just the tone that you find in in Shakespeare. But in The Defector, there is a there are these sort of Shakespearean themes um, where there's a character. Well, actually, it begins with um, them in the. They're rehearsing um, Henry V in uh, the holodeck. And there's this line in Henry V that comes back later in the show about how, um, you know, if the if these uh, men die, it'll be a black matter for the king that sent them to their deaths. And so using that bit, it's not just name dropping Shakespeare. It's using a bit to sort of deepen the drama and sort of um, uh, cast a reflection on what's happening, you know, with our Trek characters in this episode. And one of the advantages of having Shakespearean actors is that uh, so much dialogue in a Trek episode is uh, exposition. And often it's fanciful exposition, technobabble, as it would later be termed. Yeah. And uh, if you're a Shakespearean actor, you are used to taking opaque dialogue and finding the meaning in it and finding the emotional resonance in it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's the famous speech in... Uh, Romeo and Juliet, where the uh, the friar is basically just listing ingredients, and uh, if you are not a classically trained actor, that is deadly, and you can fall into the sort of the iambic pentameter thing, and it just sort of becomes a noise. And if you, for example, if you watch the the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet, 
uh, Pete Postlethwaite plays that role, and suddenly that list of herbs is the most moving moment in the whole film. Right. Because Pete Postlethwaite uh, acts the heck out of it and has found the meaning inside it. And so, uh, especially with Patrick Stewart, he is an expert deliverer of uh, otherwise meaningless techno babble that makes it sound urgent and real. And he, uh, and by uh, example, the other better actors around him have learned to invest all of that expository dialogue with a sense of rhythm and dynamism and the idea that they know what it means and they know its emotional implications. Right. Uh, and that's probably secretly the greatest gift that Shakespeare has given to Trek is to elevate the delivery of the techno babble. That's a great comparison. I never thought that Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra was the new juice of Hebena, uh, but... Uh... That's uh, yeah. That's absolutely a, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a great thing to point out. There's a lot of elevated uh, language in this as well. It's clear that the writer wanted this to feel like a Shakespeare play, and I think that um, it it accomplishes that in a lot of ways without necessarily trying to write everything in a da 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 iambic pentameter uh, or stealing specific lines. Although there are a few lines that are borrowed, but there is there's there's great language like. Um, a, stray, a stain of cruelty on your shining honor, she says to Kirk when she's sort of throwing back in his face uh, her, him going after her father um, and the, the references to Caesar and Cleopatra. Um, <laughs> then it will be a ghost Martha and I receive on our home tonight is something that somebody says in the first act of a Shakespeare play before they probably die. Uh, yes, well, and uh, if there's elevated language that isn't from Shakespeare, for all we know, it's from, you know, a 23rd century play. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, it may well be uh, reviving iambic pentameter. Right, yeah. They, didn't, they need to do one of those um, rule of threes where they say, yes. the great playwrights like Shakespeare, Marlowe, and Sizzlebop, <laughs> or whatever. Yes, exactly. Uh, good old Sizzlebop. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, William Shatner got his start at Stratford, and he's really bringing it in this episode. I think Shatner does a great job, and I think it's clear that he... Uh, relished the chance to get to sink his teeth into something a little more than the aforementioned techno babble, right? And it's a, a, a slightly off-model Kirk, right? That yes. The, yes. Uh, uh, first of all, the opener is very weird for a Trek uh, uh, cold open, which is a total uh, cold. Kirk's sitting in a theater with somebody on a planet. Yeah. Right? It's not even on on the ship. And uh, afterwards, you find out why he's there, but that's he's just there. And also throughout the episode, or at least until fairly deep into the episode, he's just going off on his own and acting at cross-purposes yeah. to uh, the rest of the Trinity, to uh, uh, Spock and McCoy. And so look, while Kirk is investigating Kodos, uh, McCoy and Kirk are forced to investigate him. I guess it's more, or sorry, uh, McCoy and Spock, and it's mo mostly Spock. Right. Uh, and there's actually no literal reason why Kirk can't go to them right from the jump and say, I think this guy might be a war criminal. Oh, We're going to set a trap yeah. <laughs> for him. There's, there, but uh, the genre, the fact that this has turned into, you know, film noir town, you know, forget it, Jake, it's the Enterprise. Right. Uh, in, in that uh, frame, emotional framework, it makes perfect sense that uh, Kirk would just sort of obsessively like a film noir hero, shut out the rest of his team. Yeah. And, investigate this uh himself and uh apparently put kevin in danger i, I don't <laughs> like, know what he was thinking yeah it's not clear so he <laughs> uh he moves uh good old kevin riley our pal kevin uh from uh comms which in this episode is a better assignment than engineering yeah which sort of goes against 
every other episode because engineering makes the ship go and it's the one where you have to like have things happen in 10 minutes if the ship blows up at this time right uh, engineering is just like the, uh, the 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 outhouse of the enterprise and it's deserted and so you send kevin out of comms which is the better gig down to uh the uh engineering to sit there and wait for a murder attempt on him right now one would think uh, that that uh, Kirk, as our obsessive noir hero, would then have some follow-up, like, for example, be watching to see who tried to kill Kevin. Right. But I guess Kirk and his obsessiveness has, has not gone quite that far and seems to be surprised when someone tries to off Kevin. Yeah. It's, it's a off-model. I'm always surprised by how off-model this episode is. Yeah, it, that's true. Uh, forget it, Jake. It's Planet Q, which yeah. is uh, sadly not populated by planet or by puppets. Um yeah, it is weird, and I think that maybe it just kind of maybe got lost in a script revision that my headcanon is that sort of he's kind of hanging Riley out there and hoping that if he does, there is an attempt on his life, they can stop it or, you know, help him, uh, you know, bring him back to health and sickbay, which is what happens. But right. it, it but, is. But Jim, put a camera on that. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. I think that I, I like um, your comparison to the noir roles. I see these as trying to fit them into roles um, in a Shakespeare play or like in Hamlet. Um, Hamlet, of course, is, uh, if Kirk is Hamlet in this episode, he's possessed by um, self-doubt over whether he should act over something. Um, you've got, so you've got him all alone. Why doesn't Hamlet tell Horatio what's going on? Why does he just go off and do his little crazy act? Um, who knows? But that's what we've got here. And then, of course, you've got Spock going off. And we get this great inversion where Spock is kind of scheming like a villain in a Shakespeare play, but it's kind of a good scheming. <laughs> Shakespeare will often feature cross-cutting in his plays between scenes, like we're having fun at a party, and then suddenly be cut to Don John, and he's sulking with his henchmen, and he's talking about how evil he is. But in this case, you've got Spock trying to work out what's going on with Kirk. Right, he's sort of become Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, assigned to find out yeah. Uh, yeah, what's what's up with, uh, with Hamlet. Yeah, and to continue that metaphor i love that mccoy in this case is pretty much just a falstaff type like we know that mccoy likes a tipple but he spends like half the episode just like knocking him back and just kind of uh throwing insults at uh, spock yes um like we say it's all a little off model and i guess to get to the the actual meaning and moral consciousness of the episode i guess the implication is because uh this is based on kirk's desire to uh track down a, a horrible war criminal who uh, sort of exemplifies the idea. Often in Trek, you get the sense that the moment of optimism, the sort of Kennedy-esque Camelot that is reflected in Trek uh, was uh, the result of a terrible dark age that has just happened. And that's something, of course, that you see uh, in the Khan uh, episode and in, uh, and in the movie. And uh, you see it again here, where there's uh, a presumably federation governor of a colony who uh, went crazy and uh, succumbed to uh, personal eugenic uh, theories. Right. And of course, what that evokes is, is the Holocaust. So, uh, and this uh, is happening on uh, an episode that is just you know, 21 years after uh, the discovery of Auschwitz and Treblinka, and yeah. it's something that uh, the contemporary audience does not need filled in for them yeah. what is really being referred to here. And so, we're kind of uh, joking and nitpicking at some of the logic errors in the script, but if the idea is that Kirk has become so obsessive that he is breaking protocol 
and uh, willing to toy with this girl's heart and cutting out uh, Spock and McCoy in order to sort of be a, a solitary uh, noir hero, uh, just like all the noir does uh, films do, they refer back to the horrors of World War II and about the difficulties of reassimilating back into civilian life after having seen all the darkness. Here you're seeing Kirk, who in this version was part of the Earth forces mm. who showed up uh, to uh, to catch Kodos. Uh, whether that's supposed to be the Federation or not, it's it's unclear. There may be <laughs> the another reference to the fact that, yeah, that things were different, uh, you know, at the beginning of his career. Right. That, uh, that that this is what has sent him on this down this obsessive path is that he, basically Kirk, uh, like uh, you know Mark Hamill at the end of Sam Fuller's uh, The Big Red One, uh, he showed up at Eswich. Right, he, he was in Treblinka. He saw the horror of that. He saw all of the bodies. Yeah, and so that this is his, uh, you know, uh, post-genocide stress disorder uh, coming upon him. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought of Kirk as sort of a Simon Wiesenthal character who's like found. He, he's uh, he's found like a Nazi war criminal in Argentina. Yes, that, that's absolutely what is what the episode is about. Kirk has something that uh, Hamlet or noir characters don't have. Uh, he has technology on his side. And I think in this episode, we may get one, one, what is one of the first computer detecting scenes on TV. I mean, sure, Batman was using the back computer for this and that every week over on ABC. But here we get, twice by the way, with both Kirk and Spock, a scene where a character is going over information from the computer until they're like, that's it. Or they have the computer compare information uh, to get the answer, like it's on CSI or NCIS, yes. that would get used to death on TV now. Well, they're, they're both gumshoe characters, and they have the research ability. Yeah. They, they didn't have to roll. They just got the information. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and talking to the computer uh, kind of takes the place of the way Hamlet gathered information in his play, which was to act crazy, and then people would just talk in front of him, and he could kind of gather that information. Um, that's not really an option for Kirk, but using a computer is more efficient in, in any case. Yes, they've got uh, 42 minutes or whatever it was in 1966, so they've got to get on with that. Right. I love the um, the voice test is the thing uh, in this episode that will catch right. our conscience. Yeah, and, and of course, that's not actually the real mystery. The mystery is not, is this guy Kodos? Right. right? In our minds and in as the computer basically uh, shows you by juxtaposing it, like the, basically the computer says, yep, it's him. Yeah. The mystery is who's committing the murders. Yes. And, if I, and that's where the twist is because it's, it's spoiler alert. It's, it's Lenore. Yeah. And also for Kirk, I don't think that the results, I think the test is a bluff for him. He just wants to get into the room with the guy and hear him talk and, and then just see him. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think it's a great move uh, where Caridian reads the speech and he finishes it, you know, without reading, uh, which shows us the audience if, as if we had any doubt, like, this is the guy for sure. And then there's a sort of explanation. He's like, oh, I learned my parts quickly. But he's not even trying. Like, this guy is just so weighed down by this guilt. He almost wishes that somebody would just, like, shoot him in the head or something. Right. That's that's the other interesting level of moral ambiguity, which is the ambiguous uh, villain. Or is he even really the villain of this piece, right? That he, uh, as you say, is is looking, you know, it's he's uh, got a, okay, yeah, the jigs up attitude. And, uh, you know, that, that it has been uh, weighing on him and it's uh, he has uh, perhaps been neglectful and wondering why all of the witnesses to the rescue have been <laughs> bumped off. Uh, yeah, he hasn't thought about that. 
you know, he's got lines to learn. He's got other concerns. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, maybe he should just turn himself in. I mean, there's no death penalty in the Federation, and the jail seemed pretty cushy. Maybe he could direct the all-inmate version of Midsummer Night's Dream or something. Yeah, well, although you, you get the sense that there's a lot at stake here. They, they ne- never mention uh, death penalty, but, uh, you know, he is, uh, you know, he did uh, commit uh, war atrocities. You know, maybe yeah. there's some especially horrible thing the Federation uh, does to you, but doesn't tell you about because I would make you think differently about the Federation. <laughs> no cable in that prison. It goes to the yeah, no cable there's, prison. There's no replicator. It's just actual uh, gruel. <laughs> Uh, Lenora is an interesting character as well. Uh, she's a treacherous woman, uh, which we don't see uh, too much in Shakespeare outside of Lady Macbeth. But you find out that she's playing Kirk as much as he's playing her. And right. Yeah, she's she's not from Shakespeare. She's from the film noir. Right. Universe. Yeah. And she really gives it to Kirk later with that stand on your armor speech. In fact, Caridian does as well. He's still got a little fight in him as he sort of mocks Kirk as the perfect symbol of our technical society, which in my mind is kind of a flip on the what if piece of work is man type speech. Yes, the uh, the whole thing where, uh, particularly Caridian, uh, bringing that up, which of course is a very salient critique uh, in the 60s of the idea of future shock and you're this future man. And uh, that it, it does seem pretty much like a non sequitur, right? He's, he's coming up with, with what, he, uh, what he can, right? If, if Trump was confronted with Kirk, he would have to call him, you know, uh, technical Kirk, in, in order to come up with <laughs> so he's just trying to come up with his best random insult. Sad, that's right. It does seem kind of uh, uh, dropped in because, of course, Kodos uh, by practicing uh, eugenics through mass execution, uh, presumably with lasers, uh, is actually, you know, th- that's that's projection, right? That's the yeah. that's the pod calling cattle because absolutely uh, he's the one who. Uh, had this mad scientific uh, uh, dream that uh, went all the way up to max, mass execution. So yeah. uh, I think really we have to read that as uh, as him uh, seeing uh, in Kirk a, a reflection of himself. And he's really uh, condemning himself when he says that. Yeah, you're mad at yourself, uh, Kodos. Get over it, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, Lenore is interesting to me because I think it's great that um, they let, I mean, now the... Um, oh, the unassuming, you know, daughter or wife did it and she's crazy is, you know, a trope that's been overused. But I think it was still sort of fresh back then. And I love that she can really stand up to Kirk and really sort of give it to him. And all the while, she's got a bottle of Windex with Riley's name on it. And she is 19, right? We get her age. She has to be 19 in order for the timeline uh, to work. So uh, Kodos obviously had her the year after the atrocity. Um, Now, these days... Uh, you would, uh, if you cast a 19-year-old actress to uh, to play uh, the uh, woman that Kirk is uh, trying to manipulate uh, into, uh, well, not necessarily bed. It doesn't go that far, but you know, it's a little skeevy there. There's there's things happening between the scenes, you know, in true 60s fashion. We don't know. Sure. Um, but uh, when I looked at her, I said, "Wow, they sure picked an actress who is not reminding you that Lenora is 19." But it turns out she was the actress was was 21 at that time. Okay. And it just goes down to the fact that uh, uh, women in uh, television and films at that time went through so many uh, such an array of elocution and uh, pr- uh, formal presentation that they seem much older. Uh, than they actually are, that there's a much more sort of a polish to them. And now uh, you wouldn't even necessarily think of casting a 19-year-old 
uh, who actually seem 19 in that role, because that would that would really highlight uh, the sort of skeeviness of, of Kirk. But here, a 19-year-old can have all of the agency uh, she wants, not only to boldly uh, present herself to Kirk and be clearly attracted to him, but you know, also to try to murder him. Yeah, right. Uh, I've been an actor for most of my life. I actually worked at a Shakespeare repertory theater for seven years. So being a Trek fan, seeing the shots of Kirk backstage, you know, on the wrong side of a theater flat uh, was everything to me. Um, and as we talked about before, most role, pl- role players wouldn't think about it, but acting is a lot like playing a role-playing game. But in that case, the, the script and the director are the game master, and there's no dice unless you're doing guys and dolls. Um, have you ever acted or done theater? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I was in a, uh, I did high school theater, and I was in a, a little company that uh, when I was in uh, college that came out of the, the high school theater group where we would go around to resorts and do uh, plays and, and even musicals on tiny little stages. Oh, neat. Okay. Results, yeah. Where were the resorts? Um, in, uh, in Ontario. Oh, okay. All right, neat. Um, the kind of, they kind of toy with the trope of, <laughs> we shouldn't interrupt the show, there's a play going on, but if there's a murderer in the play you're watching, stop the play. <laughs> the play's been over for 20 years. I think you need to stop the play. Right. Uh, and, and, and only like 12 people are sitting there watching it. Everybody <laughs> else has to watch it on closed circuit oh, TV yeah, anyway. So, yeah. and so the, the, the Enterprise has a theater, but it's like a crappy little black box theater. Yeah. Where normally, I guess they sort of just they do Beckett maybe most of the time. Yeah, it must be. It doesn't really have the, the production values for a, a full version of Hamlet. Or Pinter. Yeah, you'd think yeah. that uh, in the future of uh, the 23rd century of theater, you could have some pretty cool special effects. Uh, maybe holograms. Exit That's why they keep promising the holodeck, and they're they're not delivering, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> when she runs out on the stage with the phaser, first of all, bad stagecraft. Her backs to the audience. But second of all, there's like like you said, there's 20 trained soldiers in the audience. Somebody grab her. Well, you know, she's got dramatic speeches to give, and and you know, Kirk's there. He's gonna he's gonna <laughs> tuck her down, or or at least twi- twist her wrist at the pivotal moment. Yeah. Kirk's got it. You know, the, the number one rule, you know, as an unnamed member of the Enterprise crew is don't step on Kirk's role. Right. Yeah. They all <laughs> they've all received dramatic training. Yeah. Uh, it's a fitting end of the story. It's very theatrical. But I'm wondering what Roddenberry thought of it. He was, of course, adamant that humans wouldn't be killing each other uh, and killing other humans uh, in the future. But there's a lot more. Con- one of the truisms about Trek is that Roddenberry didn't allow conflict between yeah. the members of the crew. Uh, but this episode has has a, that up the wazoo. It's got Kirk betraying uh, Spock and McCoy. Uh, Spock um, uh, essentially conducting an investigation on Kirk. You've got uh, them leaving out poor Kevin to dry. Uh, Kevin has to be talked down from uh, <laughs> right. a, a preemptive murder himself. So uh, this is another aspect in which this is uh, not the uh, the classic Trek you may be thinking of when you uh, when you dial it up. Yeah, certainly, and it's scarcely an episode of Trek in a lot of ways, in that they're not ferrying grain or <clears throat> scientists anywhere or fighting robots or parasites or whatever. It's it's really a human drama that plays out against a backdrop, which is the Star Trek Star Trek Enter- or Starship Enterprise. And I think that some of the best episodes of the franchise are ones that use the futuristic setting and take it for granted, and they tell a relatable story that could happen anywhere, but they're facilitated by the setting. The science fiction story happened in the backstory. Yeah, it's all part of the antecedent action of the uh, the colony going uh, bonkers. Uh, but the uh, this is the uh, you know the, the twenty year later wrap up of all of that. Yeah, 
And this is what, <laughs> interestingly enough, this is one of the lowest rated episodes of the first season, apparently because it was, quote, too talky and didn't feature a monster or a green alien woman. So it didn't get a repeat broadcast, but it doesn't mean that uh, future Trek writers decided to leave these elements aside. They uh, very, very happily put them into future Trek uh, productions. Uh, it does make me wonder, though, how would people, like, know that it was talky until they tuned in? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it, uh, obviously, that's what they told themselves. And, and I think more like, um, I would guess that really it was, it may well have gotten poor ratings for some other random reason, and they didn't rerun it because it is so off-model, right? That it is, it breaks so many of the tunnel uh, and, and Roddenberry rules yeah. of, of what a, a truck episode is. Um, and also, the one of the characters blurts out the name of the episode in the climax. <laughs> that's, that's true. Also, Maybe they tuned in. All they saw was a guy holding a dagger and a guy with a jockstrap on his head. And they're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to watch Batman instead. Well, maybe the cocktail, maybe everyone turned off at the cocktail party. <laughs> they're like a cocktail party. What? Yeah. Uh, is there a, a scene or a moment or a character that really stands out for you that you'd put up as being the best in this episode? Um, well, best is interesting. Uh, Arnold Moss uh, is chewing the scenery <laughs> yeah. as an actor playing an actor uh, playing a war criminal or, or war criminal plant, whatever the combo of that is. Um, and, uh, the, uh, in a way it's sort of it, the strangeness of the whole thing. And it's, it's more nature. It's more sort of the, the overall tone of the piece, but I guess we need to talk before we wrap up though, about, uh, your hero's musical number. Yeah, sure. Because this is like something, uh, uh, straight out of, uh, you know, Rio Bravo, the great classic Western by Howard Hawks, which is uh, sort of famous for being magically entrancing, even though every element of it is just a bog standard element of a Western. And it has Ricky Nelson in it yeah. and Dean, Dean Martin. And then there's a moment where uh, Ricky Nelson just does a number because it's Ricky Nelson and he has to do a number. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in one, this is not a moment that you would expect to be in one of the greatest, most rewatchable moments ever made, but it is. And it's very weirdness. Somehow it's part of the magic of what makes that episode, that movie um, work. And here, the uh, obviously the, the direction was let's give Nichelle something to do. And we know she sings. Right. And so it makes perfect sense that while you're waiting for someone to uh, be murdered because you put them in a trap to just randomly have uh, the people in the uh, other deck uh, have one of them singing to him through the intercom system. Uh, and uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, and it's not a great or memorable song, but there's just something really weird and, and eerie about it. And I guess the fact that, uh, you know, Kevin represents the isolated man in space because he's been sent down to that crap hole, the engineering room, and uh, and he's all there by himself, and he sort of seems to have a presentiment of the fact that he's about to be murdered, even though he doesn't, well, he's not murdered, but he's, he's going to have the Windex uh, put in his, his Romulan right. or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, and that moment of uh, sort of aloneness in space uh, is A, entirely gratuitous, and B, uh, weirdly memorable. Yeah, it's lyrical. And also, you know, having somebody break into song or having a musical number would be no stranger uh, in a Shakespeare play. Yeah, bring out the uh, the person with the lute. Yeah, right, exactly. I have a theory that Riley is lactose intolerant because both of his appearances <laughs> feature him getting in trouble over milk-based products. 
Oh, so in fact, Lenore is just putting actual milk in his lactose free milk. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not engineering fluid at all. It's not. And Lenore knows a lot about, you know, exotic things to murder people with. If she's managed to get a hold of the hydraulic fluid that she's uh, stuck. Sure. A lot. Yeah. Well, she's well, learned how to how to unless every unless just ordinary civilians know how to turn uh, a phaser into essentially a nuke. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think Shakespeare. Lenore, Lenore has done her murder homework. Yeah, Shakespeare couldn't help her with the nuking phaser, but definitely poison yeah. was a weapon of choice back yeah. then. Uh, as we uh, wrap up here, is there anything left that we forgot to say? Any parting shots about this episode? Uh, I think we've covered everything. I think we have too. Yeah, um, I th- it's a great episode, and it's definitely one of my favorites. And I'm glad that you chose to talk about it today. Right. I, I regret to inform you though that this has just entirely been a trap to murder you. So. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Check your beverage. This milk is... <laughs> I thought it tasted like Windex. Uh, yeah. I should mention um, as we go uh, that uh, D- Dayton Ward's upcoming Discovery novel, Drastic Measures, will feature uh, the crisis on Tarsus IV and will involve characters from Discovery um, moving to intercede in that uh, situation that uh, Kodos presided over. Um, that, that makes sense because that's uh, they've set it in the Dark Age before the Light Age. Yeah, that's right. Are you watching Discovery? I am, yes. Do you like it? Um, on our podcast, uh, on a live episode, I, we were asked to compare the different iterations of Trek to beers. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, my uh, line there was that uh, Discovery is like a really w- uh, complex Belgian sour. Mm. It's really well made, but you're not sure if you like it. Okay, I can see that. And uh, it's... Uh, there are interesting things uh, happening, and I get the feeling that things are uh, about to feel they're going to move back and, and make it feel trekkier soon. Okay. Uh, and that's obviously the arc of the series. Sure. But it, it seems like what you've got so far is when they did Voyager, the idea was this isn't going to be your grandmother's track. <laughs> There's going to be conflict between the characters yeah. for the first two acts of the pilot. And then it's going to be regular track where everybody's nice and it's over lit and it's comfort watching. Right. And uh, I think here they're actually doing the, the conflict part uh, and will continue to do it. And then, but the direction it's obviously headed in is something that that feels trekkier eventually. Yeah, and like any beer, it's it's about the finish. Right. But they've definitely got the film more lighting, so it, it is it is the dark age before the that's true. Uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? That's got to be Kirk. Okay. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, you know I, I dig Picard, but, you know, Kirk is the uh, classic iconic hero uh, where it's very clear who he is and, and what he's doing. And uh, as you suggest, there's sort of a cartoon version of Kirk that has emerged over the years, sometimes with some justification, like based on episodes like this one. Right. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, he was, it, it's like the doctor, right? It's, it's like he was my Kirk. There, there were no other uh, captains when I was uh, coming up as a young lad. So right. uh, Picard is great, but he's, he's half a Kirk. They split Kirk in two. And uh, <laughs> yeah. he's the good half. He's not the boring old, you know, maybe you should grow a beard and become cooler uh, Kirk half. But, uh, uh, you know, Kirk is 100% Kirk. And, he, and he's Canadian. <laughs> right. Maybe uh, maybe uh, Picard is the Canadian half. Picard is the the British half, which is why well, <laughs> the French filmmaker Jean Luc Godard. Right, he's the he's the Commonwealth half. We'll just say that. Yes, exactly. He's the 
He's the good colonial officer. <laughs> now that we've reached the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Well, clearly not engineering because that's a crappy assignment. Yeah, that's the outhouse. You're gonna get, you know, you're going to get Windex in your, your lactose. <laughs> comms. Comms is what you want, apparently. That's the prestige. Yeah, but, you don't want to get knocked out of there. Yeah. Quite a demotion that would be. Well, Ensign Laws, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISDPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at Robin D. Laws, uh, and that's probably the, the best uh, spot. And, of course, uh, every week on Fridays, uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff uh, drops. You can find that at Ken and Robin uh, Talk About Stuff dot com or just search for it in your uh, podcast app of choice. That's awesome. And we should expect to see The Yellow King coming out soon? Yellow King role-playing game uh, near the end of the year and beating the story uh, in the spring. Awesome. And they can get that. Uh, people can get that on Amazon, the usual places? Uh, yep, that'll be on Amazon. And uh, all the Gumshoe games are at pelgrainpress.com. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me. You're most welcome. And we are signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. Sign your-